Stop assuming trust with your internal systems. As we've adopted a culture of security within the company that I'm at and, and, and actually watching the team, the teams start to think more in that way, I think I would challenge the community as well um, that y- you can move fast, but we can also be secure. And I think sometimes we've gotten a bad rap for running fast and loose. And I think with some of the new technology available, I don't think we have to do it that way anymore. And uh, I, th- I, would, I would just challenge the community to step up the way we handle security, especially with the tools that we're using every day. Hello and welcome to DevOps Sauna podcast. I wonder if you have already heard about the DevOps conference. It is coming again on March 8th and 9th and you are invited to join our event. In the conference you have almost 40 awesome speeches to listen and to select from. And one of the themes is security and compliance. And that's what we're talking about today. The topic of today is will you sleep better when your DevOps environment is dark? What does it mean to make your DevOps environment dark? Well, we'll find out. We are joined today by Mike Guthrie, engineering team lead at NetFoundry, and Andy Allred, lead DevOps consultant at Eficode. Let's tune in. Thank you both Mike and Andy for joining the DevOps Sauna podcast. Thank you guys, it's fun to be here. Thanks. The topic today If I'm not mistaken, we're talking about zero trust today, right? Yep, talking about zero trust, and you know, will, will you sleep better at night if your if your DevOps environments are dark? With with any DevOps environment, you've got you know you've kind of got your production app, right? That that everybody works hard to you know we we harden it, we do all you know the security audits against it, we do pen testing against it, all these things. But then we've got you've got all this peripheral stuff right all the all the weird systems that you build to support the main system and we don't necessarily put the same rigor around those right and it's like you know we think about oh yeah go you know go ahead and try to break into my my front door you know of the the production app and so forth we've hardened that thing it's it's solid but then you say hey come hey pen tester come come uh, try to beat up on my monitoring system or come beat up on my uh you know developer support portal or you know come beat up on on you know the RCI CD system i think most people would get a lot more uncomfortable and there were there was some stuff that you know as as we started to see major hacks across the industry in and and they were they were getting into the devops systems you know they were getting into ci cd and they were getting in through monitoring and things like that and it just got kind of got us thinking where it's like i know for for me there were a few systems where i'm like man it's like the door for for this particular system is really not as solid as i would like it to be and and it, it actually started with our data warehouse to where um uh, we had we had cloud stuff um that needed to to talk to the data warehouse and i was like yeah that the door for that is just not as good as what i would be comfortable with that's a, that's a lot of data and it's just, it's it's a really high value target and so that's when i decided let me let me take a stab at at putting a zero trust networking technology in front of it and let's let's see what that does for it so it started with with the data warehouse and because we've got you know end users that need to talk with it and and interact with it directly but they're they're all over the globe and you know uh, we're a remote company so some people might be at a coffee shop some people would might be at home um so it didn't it didn't really make sense to do a classic you know ip whitelisting type of model so we needed to to look at you know a zero trust model just simply lended itself much better because in a zero trust world you're not worried about ips and ports so much as you are about services and identities anybody who's accessing it is a known entity they're a known identity and they they have to enroll and they are granted explicit access and so we tried putting our data warehouse uh, or putting zero trust in front of our, our our data warehouse so that people could access it and typically 
typically like coming from an ops background, anytime somebody say, okay, we're going to, we're going to lock this thing down or we're going to, you know, add, add new access controls. To me, that was always synonymous with like, okay, now we're going to, you know, massively break things for like two weeks and it's going to, you know, it's going to take a long time to figure out all the, all the, <laughs> all the roadblocks that we've introduced for ourselves. And what I found with introducing zero trust networking, it was actually so much easier than I was expecting it to be because we were able to kind of pre-validate um, all of the changes and pre-validate everybody's access before we made everything dark. And so uh, we got everybody enrolled. We got everybody um, set up with the proper access. And I was speaking from the, the context of, of OpenZD and, and our enterprise offering with, with NetFoundry with it. One of the things that we have with it is uh, quite a bit of metrics and visibility around it so that anybody who's accessing a service, we can actually see, you know, what identity was accessing what services and when. And so we were actually able to pre-validate when we did the migration and say, okay, you know, let's, let's uh, put these users into the zero trust network and, and have them start intercepting and going through the, the, the dark network basically to, to get to the data warehouse. And we could actually see, okay, yep, they, they're able to access it just fine. We can see their traffic flowing. Everything's working. And we were able to do that before we made the service dark. It actually made it really, really easy so that when it came for the switchover day where it's like, okay, kill the public access, it was basically just a non-event. Like we killed it and I was expecting fireworks just because of my history of working with this stuff. And then it was nothing. Everything just worked. And we're like, okay, cool. Like we're done. Uh, let's go do another one. And just, just open our eyes to where it's like once, once you kind of understand uh, the process of what you need to do and, and you just get everybody set up and you have the infrastructure in place. Um, especially once you do it once, adding additional services and putting it, making them dark and putting it behind a zero trust network. We're like, this is actually way easier than I was expecting it to be and went a whole lot smoother than I had guessed it would. So. And when you say you uh, took made the service go dark, I have quite an operations background myself. Many times, uh, my, my CICD pipeline or some of my monitoring tools were completely dark to the security guys because they didn't know about them. So that <laughs> yes, was the way yeah. I was able to maintain them and use them from anywhere I wanted and from whatever coffee shop, everything went just fine. But I'm guessing, uh, you know, when we get to zero trust, then going dark means a, a little bit different. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I say, say going dark too, and, um, in the zero trust space too, with the, with the open ZD technology, what it, what it does is that you've got, you'll have a fabric mesh that basically is hosted in a, typically hosted in a public cloud. Um, you'll have an endpoint, which is like, let's say an endpoint would be, uh, or uh, an identity. Let's say my laptop is an identity, but also my cell phone might be a separate identity. Um, and maybe I want to implement separate access controls for each of those because maybe I don't need access to the same stuff on my cell phone. So do you have agents? Do you have like an agent running in your laptop and on your cell yep. phone or? Yeah. So we have what's called a tunneler that, that will, um, kind of live on whatever that, uh, whatever that identity is. Um, and so, and that. It's kind of a similar idea to like just a VPN client or something like that, that is just an agent that routes some network connections. Yep. And so in, in what it does is that it'll, it'll pick up and it'll intercept the traffic. The, a couple major differences that it would have over, over VPN is that, you know, with VPN, you're, you're essentially kind of opening, opening the door and opening the gate mm. to the, the whole private network. Whereas this kind of, you know, in, in addition to having the encryption and so forth and having that identity based access, it also lets you implement at least privilege as well, because you can get very, very explicit in terms of what that identity has access to. So, uh, at the, at the network level, they will only have access to the things that are explicitly granted for that service. So instead of, instead of, you know, exposing the entire network and whatever ports and IPs are available inside of that, you're, you're only granting them access to given services. And that, like, say for the, for the desktop clients, you can actually see which services you've been granted. 
um, access to and so forth. And in terms of on, on the other side of the equation, um, in terms of how you make something dark is that you can, you can place uh, what we call an edge router. Um, you can actually place that inside of a private network space. The way that works is it actually calls outward and maintains a persistent connection to the mesh out in the cloud. And because it's an outbound, it's a punch out, so to speak, you can actually close all ingress to that network space. So there's no, in terms of traditional networking, you can close the door entirely so that nothing can get in. And it's actually that persistent connection that's allowing things to go in, but it's only granting as you give that explicit permission. So right. uh, essentially you could have an entire, you know, VPC or an entire security group be completely dark with no, no ingress at all. So. Okay. But then from the user point of view, you don't do anything different than install this client and conceptually think of like a VPN client type of thing and your services are just granted for you. And, but then be, behind the scenes, all the networking is kind of uh, magically, I'm waving my hands here, magically taken care of for you and you just get connection to the services you're allowed to see. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, and and uh, in terms of the the access as well, it's 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 managed through um, what we call attributes. Um, think of like tags, and so in the same way that you would manage, like I don't know if you've worked with like Active Directory, where you put people in and out of groups, mm-hmm. and that controls yep. their their access at an application level. It's the same kind of concept where you simply you know give somebody an attribute, and that might represent like a an access group or things like that, and that's that's essentially granting access at the network level. So in addition to whatever authentication your application might have. This is, you know, granting them access at the network levels just so that they can even talk to that network service. Right. Okay. And I guess you do integrate with some active directory or user directory somehow. Yeah. So for, for our, for our enterprise offering, yeah, we have something that allows, um, you can sync your active directory groups and actually those, those groups can actually become attributes and so forth. Um, and so you can, you can maintain that and that way you're using active directory to actually manage the, the network access as well. Right. So you're not setting up a new set of data for all the users. You're just kind of reusing what's already there and mapping groups to, to services and such. Yep. The, the customers that we have that are larger, that's, you know, I mean, they, they might, we'll have a couple thousand users. That's, that's kind of the only feasible way that, right. that, that it works. Um, the, uh, um, the other thing that we're doing as well is we're, uh, we should hopefully have an article coming about this pretty soon too, but we're trying to, trying to document and, and demonstrate how to do basically network as code to where you can actually take a YAML definition, you know, tie that to your CI CD system and so forth. And basically you have declarative networking in that way to where, you know, everything's defined in a, in a, in a YAML file. And basically you, you simply submit that YAML file and it will, um, it'll use some libraries underneath to actually basically diff and so forth. And it will, it will manage that. So if you say, okay, these 10 endpoints, they need these attributes, you could commit that to your version control, put up a pull request, and then, you know, your, your CI CD system handles actually applying that change for you. So that way you don't end up in the same challenges that you have with, you know, like say AWS, where people are clicking around on the console and making changes and, and you don't know what they did. So, okay. So then the big advantage from this over like a traditional firewall or even, you know, network firewall, network rules type of thing is traditionally you just block the unneeded ports, but you're even blocking the needed ports unless you're already have a client and part of the mesh. Yep. Exactly. Because you can make the connectivity work with um, no open ports at all, at least, you know, within within mm. uh, kind of your 
uh, you know, traditional firewall and things like that. It, it creates a lot of new possibilities in terms of, you know, creating that secure connectivity without, you can do it quickly without creating, you know, sec- security holes. Uh, you know, I, I remember at a, yeah. at a previous company, I was, uh, the first, the, the, my first job, uh, when I moved from being a developer to a DevOps guy was, uh, to revamp the, uh, the monitoring infrastructure because I had a, I had a background in that. So of course, you know, I stand up the new infrastructure, but one of the first things I needed to do was go sit down with the Linux admin and be like, okay, I need you to punch these 26 holes in the firewall because mm. I need to monitor everything. <laughs> and so I had my list of all the things. And, and although that was necessary, that's, that's, you know, it's not ideal either. Cause of course now I'm, I'm just punching new holes in the fire, firewall and creating new points of entry. And it's known tools that you're using. So the ports are well known and kind of everybody on the internet is using the same ports for the same services. Yeah. So it's easy to figure out which ports to try checking and, and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. Yep. And it's still, you know, and you still, of course, you know, you do your best to try to, to lock access to, you know, it's only the sources and things like that. With that, you're, you're still even anytime you're leaving a port open, you know, I think, I think we're, 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 I've seen this emerge more and more. It's like you leave, you leave a port open, you're still subjecting yourself to network level attacks. And you're also, yep. you're still accountable to any, any zero day vulnerability that's ever going to get found for that thing that's on the other yep. side of that port. Um, and we've, we've seen, we've seen a few of those in the last two years too. And, and some of them were, uh, there, there's a couple of tools that I really like where that, that saw some zero days come out for them. I was like, wow, that's, hor- that's horrendously bad that that particular tool had, you know, had a zero day on it because it's like, you know, you know, people are using that to, to manage their infrastructure and, and, yeah. um, and automate a lot of things. And I think, yeah, you know, as I've started working with this, Particularly for us in the in the DevOps space, you know, we don't we don't like to administrate systems. So our, our way around that is we try to automate everything. So what mm-hmm. do we do? We we build a system to administrate the systems for us. And so in order to do that, we of course give it all these superpowers to do all these incredible, awesome things. But it's like, but then you know, if we if we stop and think about it, it's like, well, what happens if that really cool automation system gets compromised? Like mm-hmm. you think about the level of damage that that can do because. We've now replaced a human operator with an automation tool, you know, that's, that's full of code. And it's like, oh, it's, it's a, it's a CI CD p- pipeline. So of course, what does it do? You know, it runs uh, database migrations. It deploys and execute codes in all the places that, you know, that actually matter. And, uh, you know, runs config management for us and it does all these things. It's like, well, that's, that's great. But I mean, why do you, I mean, why do you think, you know, some of the major compromises we've seen in the last two years, they're going after CI CD systems? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a perfect, it's a perfect venue. They're not, they're not going to come in the front door. It's like, you've got, you've got, you know, encryption, you know, all the way to up to your load balancer. It's like, well, they're not going to try to crack your encryption. That's hard. You know, they're going to, they're going to yeah. go around the back door and, and be like, no, let me just get inside your private network space because by there, you know, your, your security posture is weakened and, and, yeah. you know, you're not trying so hard to protect everything. So. Yeah. And conceptually, you kind of think that, well, this is in my CI CD pipeline, so I only have the secrets or the tokens or the users in there. It's one place I need to keep secure. So this is already better. But then it's also like one place to attack, one place to look at. And when you get that, you've got the keys to the kingdom. Yep, exactly. I think that's why for us in the DevOps space, we need to be thinking more in this way. Um, I think that where we've seen really bad um, system compromises, it's it's because we assumed trust in a lot of our internal tooling. We, you know, in in a public API, we don't assume trust because we it's, it's public. We, we it's the front door. We we promote it. We sell it. But we don't, you know, because we don't promote. You know, of course, our our internal tools, our data warehouses, our CI/CD systems, our monitoring systems. Uh, we don't promote them publicly. We don't protect them with the same rigor either. Um, and I think these are the systems that we need to really start thinking about. Um, 
how do we how do we secure these better? Um, and these are these are all systems that really lend themselves well to a trust model because generally it's a very finite list of people, like, and they are actually you know people and entities. It's like no, only only known trusted people should be accessing these systems, and mm. therefore I think they lend themselves really well to a zero trust model because there's there's no reason a you know a port needs to be open to anybody everywhere for for a given system like this it's like no only the people i know personally and i've granted access to explicitly should be able to access this um and so i think these types of systems lend themselves really well to zero trust yeah and i guess if you're granting trust per service per environment per user kind of level and blocking all connections except those then it's much more comfortable to give kind of temporary access or developers more access than typically you would and whatnot. And I guess that has some speed benefits as well for developing Absolutely. and debugging the issues and whatnot. Well, and we, we've probably all had the, uh, been put in the position where it's like this developer, they need, you know, something's broken in prod and this problem, it's only exists. It's only existing in prod. We can't reproduce mm -hmm. it anywhere else. We need to give this developer access to talk to prod so they can debug yeah. it. But it's like, we've all had that person where it's like, I don't know if I want to give this person access to like all the things. It's like, I'm a little nervous about that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they're newer or maybe they're just not familiar with the other 80% that's up there. And you're just like, mm. gosh, it's like, it, and you know, it's, it, it can be a little disconcerting for things like that or, you know, operations versus developers or, you know, you've got one developer that is more focused on billing related stuff and another developer that's more focused on, you know, uh, operational centric stuff, things like that. You can separate and isolate their access within even the same environment. You don't have to open up the whole door to everything. And I think, right. you know, I think in terms of, um, as we, as we think about securing our systems, it's like that, that'd be the thing I'd, I'd challenge, I'd challenge people in the industry in our, in our space to start thinking about it that way of, of stop opening the door to the entire, you know, to the entire private network space, because we're, you know, it, it's, it's a massive opening that we leave. And that's, I think, I think that's what hackers are targeting these days. It's like, I just need to fi find a way to get inside. Cause once I'm mm -hmm. inside, you know, you're basically inside the city walls, you can wreak havoc and, and, you know, you don't put in the same protections. So. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I was thinking about when you said that, that basically all the the systems itself are, are automated, and then we sort of put our effort in putting our hands on the automation systems itself. That begs a question for whether performing security testing for the actual output of, of the CICD is as important as performing security testing on the CICD itself. Yeah, because typically, you know, when you have a you know, a security audit, audit or a compliance checklist at some point, and, and, and this is just, just this is kind of, you know, real world having to deal with it. You, you have to, um, you have to put a scope to it and you have to say, okay, the boundary lines in terms of what we're going to audit, they start and stop here. And, and typically we'll put those within, you know, okay, only our production accounts or only our production application space and so forth. We don't, we, we just typically don't extend those security checks beyond that because it, it, it just from a, a practical standpoint, it's just very, very difficult to audit literally everything in your entire ecosystem. It, it's not very practical. So of course we don't do it, but as a result, we also kind of shoot ourselves in the foot because there might, there might be some glaring, glaring vulnerabilities in that space. And, and yeah, that those systems are actually, you know, deploying and executing code in the production space. And so it, it's kind of a gap that we, I think just out of being practical and people needing to get their jobs done, they've, they've maybe willfully overlooked and, 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 and maybe for audits and things like that, you know, maybe, you know, that, that's what they need to do and so forth. But it's, it's more, we just need to think about securing these tools better 
having done it with one, I, you know, I started doing that with with the data warehouse and uh, was able to do that pretty smoothly. And then I'm like, well, this, this works pretty cool. Let me do that to our CI CD tooling as well. Mm. Uh, was able to, to lock that down secured as well. Having having gone through it a couple of times, you know, now we're looking at it for our SSH access. You know, the, the common practice in the cloud is you've got, you know, a bastion to get into, you know, which which serves as the door. And it's like, well, there's no reason that bastion, you know, port 22 needs to be open to the world anymore. We're just going to, we're going to put it behind ZD and we're going to, you know, make it zero trust now so that um, the only people who can even hit that port are, you know, or, or basically we just close off the public port and we put the tunneler on the bastion itself. And so it tunnels and actually exits on localhost for the bastion and then, and then forwards on from there. So, so we're in the process of moving, moving our, our, our bastions to zero trust and being completely dark. Once you've d- done the model once, you realize it's like, okay, this, this actually isn't so bad. I stood up like a Grafana server recently, and who doesn't love Grafana in the, the uh, DevOps space? <laughs> um, and, but I realized I'm like, this is, this is connecting to a lot of data sources. And, you know, why not from day one, we're just going to make it dark because we know how to do this now. And for us, that's becoming um, kind of the new standard. Uh, of just like, let's just make it dark because there's no reason to open this up. Uh, the only people who ever need to access this are internal and it should be trusted parties. And we're starting to do that now from day one, uh, which is which is kind of cool that we're just able to start launching new tools um, that are completely dark and just have it be have it work and it's it's seamless and it's just part of part of our internal processes now. It's Laurie again. We had a webinar with Bankdata, one of the largest financial companies in Denmark. In this webinar, they share their DevOps journey and tooling choices and focus on how DevOps practices and tools help integrate security and compliance requirements in the software development. You can find the link to the webinar in the show notes. Now, let's get back to our show. And we talked a lot about the the users getting access and developers and groups, but does this apply the same way when we're talking about services that talk to other services? It'll depend on your your situation in terms of uh, what you have control over. Some of the customers that are most interested in ZD simply because it's it's open source and so forth is the fact that you can actually do a fully app embedded uh, implementation. So you can mm. actually have an application itself be the identity, and then an application on the other end be the identity. And you can actually do an endpoint uh, hosted service, so to speak. So you can actually do, you know, it's, it's full, fully encrypted, like truly end to end to where, you know, at the at the accessing application all the way to the terminating application where everything's, you know, your SSL termination is application to application. There's no mm-hmm. point ever where your traffic's unencrypted. And, and, that, that's actually the that's that's been it's been hard to get people thinking in that in that way in terms of zero trust but it's like for us when when we say zero trust as a company that's actually what we're really talking about to where no like you li- truly don't trust anything not even you know your kubernetes pod or your ecs cluster anything like there's there's we, we just assume everything's hostile and we want everything encrypted completely and their customers looking at us just simply because they have incredibly strict security requirements and that's actually what's most appealing to them because they're like we never have to decrypt our stuff ever and there's never a point where that traffic can be intercepted and so forth because you're encrypting from application all the way to application and it's a it's a fully app embedded uh, implementation and and it's truly a zero trust type of situation to where it's this application talking to this application there's no middleman anywhere you're not always going to have that you might only have it where you can control one side of the application or you might have it where you can't control either side, in which case that's where the tunnelers come in and, and you can put those. And the, the idea is that you try to get those tunnelers as close as possible 
to where the traffic is intercepted, and then, of course, where it is exiting the fabric on the other side. You generally want to just assume, even your, your, your ECS cluster, even your Kubernetes pod, assume, assume that other containers inside that are hostile and so forth. And uh, so you want to try to get that tunnel as far in and as, as close to the actual um, destination as possible. So, Right. Okay. So then for like external SaaS services or things like that, you would want to try to expose them only inside your really private lockdown network and put a tunneler there that then people connect to via the tunneler. Yep. Yeah, we did have to, like for our, our, our data warehouse, for example, we did have a cloud service that, that needed to talk to it because uh, we use it for uh, data visualization. Um, and so... Um, so we did have to create a, a basically a whitelist. We use you know you go find the outbound whitelist from uh, that particular service provider, and we did have to whitelist those IPs because you know we can't we can't uh, control that side of the equation. You know we could control you know the the end user access and so forth, but we couldn't control the cloud provider because they were also a public um, a public service and so forth. So um, there's there's times where your your hands are a little bit tied, and the best you can do is you know create a whitelist for those types of situations. Uh, we've had that for a few. Like I have that for um, for webhooks coming from um, our version control provider. We needed those webhooks coming into our CI/CD, so we still had to we had to create a whitelist for that. Whereas everything else is you know is is using zero trust access to get to get to um, to get to it. So okay. Yeah, so sometimes your hands are tied, and you, you do the best you can with what with with the options that are in front of you. But you know, I kind of look at it too as let's let's be practical, let's be realistic, let's do what we need to do to to raise the bar on, on our security. But you know, we, we also need to get our jobs done too. And so, I think what was what was fun for me is you know, you may have experienced experienced this too. We talk about you know your CI/CD systems keeping them hidden from the the security guys. Where it's like there's times where we in DevOps, it's like it feels like we're the troublemakers mm-hmm. to where it's like. Because part of our job is to make systems talk to each other and automate things and wire stuff together. So it's like, there's times where it's like, oh, the security guys, they hate us because it's like, yeah, we have to go walk around and be like, hey, I need you to, you know, open the doors to all these things so that I can automate stuff and, and so forth. And so you feel like you're walking around punching holes in security all the time because, because the nature of wiring stuff together is you, you have to open doors and make things talk. And that was one thing that was fun being able to work with this model because it let you connect things together quickly. And you were not that problem child anymore where you're opening all these doors to where it's like, no, I'm actually elevating our security posture for our internal systems and moving fast and able to connect. And I'm still able to wire stuff together quickly. And then you're able to walk to the security team and give them a blank piece of paper and say, here's the all, all the IPs and ports you need to scan. Yeah, exactly. They, they ask for that list of open ports and be like, well, there aren't any. Good luck, you know, and and. uh no, I, I, uh, I once had a, a friend of mine that I worked with that was a, a fantastic security engineer. And he, he, he kind of helped change my perspective about, about security, where he said, he's like, you know, most hackers, they don't want to work hard. If something's difficult, they're going to go move on and go find low-hanging fruit because it's just easier. They can, you know, if they see low-hanging fruit, they're going to go get it simply because they can. You make it hard enough, they're going to move on. And, you know, I think about that it's, and, and it's like, okay, you know, if you don't have any open ports as ground zero, it's like, well... Good luck, you know, and 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 so it's like they, you know, they might get somebody's system, but they're not going to get mine because it's like there's there's not even a point of ingress. So have fun trying to get into that. So you always have to be diligent and keep thinking about, you know, what are you know what are what are spaces that are kind of you know left out in the open and so forth. But at, at least for me, it's like I you know I talk about you know kind of sleep better at night. It's like well, okay, I, I no longer have my data warehouse open to the public internet where somebody can brute force and try to get in. 
It's like, no, it's, it's dark. You can't get in without trust and things like that. I'm like, okay, that I can live with. I'm comfortable with that. I'm not worried about that problem anymore. And, and since everything's going through this uh, fabric network, I guess it's pretty easy to have an, have an audit of everything that's happened and who did it. And yeah, I was like to talk about this because I get to, I got to, to be a part of uh, helping build this actually, but. When um, kind of getting to be in at the at the ground level for for the the, the open ZD technology and so forth, I, I looked at traditional network monitoring technology. Um, and it's actually why I came to to work at NetFoundry is because I was so frustrated with traditional network monitoring because I, I looked at it. And I'm just like nobody's done anything cool and interesting in the space for like 20 years. Uh, like we're still using SNMP to talk to routers and get the utilization, and it's this is horrendous. Like it's it's the worst. It's like the you know simple simple networking protocol. That's that's somebody's cruel joke. Somebody's laughing in their grave about that. Whatever. There's just there's not much new happening in that space in terms of where the world is evolving to. And so being able to be a part even at the design level of, and having those discussions of like how do we create visibility in a networking space that you simply can't do with traditional hardware. Um, that was really exciting. So getting to to build that, but then also be a part of bringing that. I got to help kind of bring that with our enterprise product. And because it's all identities and services, we don't care about IPs and ports anymore. So we're not using NetFlow and things like that, which it's not this you know massive uh, lake of data that's barely useful. Um, no, every every flow of data that goes through the network, we know exactly who it was. We know uh, what service they were accessing, and we even know which uh, which edge routers it passed through on the way. It makes it so that it's like, you know, if we have, if we even have a question of like, Hey, you know, who was, who went through the bastions in the last week? Uh, who's actually, who's actually logging into prod? And, you know, if you, if you have that question, um, if you get that concern, or if you ever have that day where you're like, Hey, we think somebody, somebody internally did something. Can we go check? If you have your system set up as zero trust, you have all that accountability too, because you can actually go back and look at the traffic and see, Oh yeah, these three people used it in the last week. And we can see that their use cases were all valid. Here's what they were going to do and so forth. But you have basically a traffic audit um, at the network level of of who specifically accessed what services internally. And that's something that I think is unique. Uh, I, I just remember that at a previous space where uh, at a previous place I worked where you ha- we had a, I had a question one day of, you know, it was it was, hey, we had to let this person go. And it was kind of like that awkward question of like, we maybe have some concerns. Can you go check for anything weird or unusual, you know, related to this person, you know, around their systems? And of course, that's a horrible question, because it's like, number one, you know, you don't have the adequate logging to go, you know, because you assumed trust inside of your your inside of your space and so forth. So it's like this person could have gotten into anything you don't know, and you don't have clear visibility into what they're talking to. All you can do is go go mine logs, look for anything weird and things like that. But it's like, again, looking for anything weird, you don't even know what you're looking for because really what you needed was, I needed to know if that person, that individual, I needed to go see what they were accessing and was any of it concerning. And in a zero trust world where you actually have, you know, network level auditing of literally all of the services that they interacted with, uh, because you have all of that traffic captured, it, it kind of solves that problem too, to where you have accountability right out of the gate because everything is zero trust and there's you, you can see exactly who's accessing what at any given time. You know, in the same way that you have accountability with version control, now you have it mm. with your network access too. Are you are you capturing also what they're doing with the service or just that they connected to a service? Just that they connected and that the yeah. the uh, um, the traffic passed through it. So there's because there's a point where once it exits the fabric you know, now, now you're, you're doing whatever that application or service and so forth is doing and so forth. So it does, um, there's a point where it hands off and it's no longer seeing that and so forth, but it does at least, it does at least record, you know, who's accessing what and so forth. Yeah. So, okay. And then it'd be up to application logs and 
whatever for anything further. But at least you'd be able to see these are the services that we're connected to and at what time and yeah, because there's there you know there are certain um, applications you know cloud providers, service providers that some of the some of them do an okay job, some of them do a great job of auditing within their application. But I think where the where the gap was is that you know historically there's not a great way at the network level to just simply see you know who's accessing network services. You know, let's like let's say you've got a, a, a Redis instance and you set up developer access to it. It's like you can't you haven't you don't know who's accessing Redis or you. Know, things like that or some sort of shared dependency things like that there's if it's if it's just a more traditional network dependency a lot of these things don't have any effective auditing whatsoever in terms of who's been accessing it directly and and for those types of scenarios uh it's great because you can actually see who's accessing that kind of stuff so you know for for like a developer access scenario if you you know if you need that kind of kind of accountability you have it out of the box so I have a question about the zero trust, specifically when we look at the CI/CD pipelines, or rather the the tool mm-hmm. chains. So often it happens that the more complicated the the business environment is, the more independent tools that tool chain comprises, and then it, there's a whole architecture question about how do we basically construe this tool chain. So on one end, you have version control and code analysis. On on the other end, you have like artifact repository and scanning and then automated testing deployment and then environments. And if I think the traditional data center network logic, you had the lobby and then you had the front end for the applications, basically web servers and the application servers. And then you had the back end for databases. And you could say that it's like a increasing level of security alertness when you go from public internet to lobby to front end to back end. And if I'm thinking zero trust, I mean... At least in theory. (laughs) Well, well, surprisingly enough, also in practice, that's a separate episode. And I speak from my experience. It was was surprisingly complicated to do, but it was achievable. But so my question is, when you think this from a zero trust perspective, so first question is, does it still exist, this sort of idea of, layered increasing level of security awareness towards the back end and then you would have to design your model in a way that you are always trusting from inside to the outside so how do you approach this from a tool chain standpoint which comprises of multiple tools i think in ter- in terms of that it, it's it's actually you start to think of these individual tools um, as identities onto their own. Again, there's they're still known. You, you can assign identity to them. You can assign explicit trust to them, and still grant least privilege around them. I think that's a strength of it too, of just being able to say, okay, this you know this testing tool chain it only needs access this far. You can assign that uh, a known identity and so forth. There's auditing around that. You know when it's running and so forth. You can even you know so so in terms of the expectations of even when it's running. And so forth. You can you can audit that. You can re, you can review that with with the varying layers and things like that. The fact that you can get very explicit and very layered with the access control and so forth, it puts you in a position to to manage a situation like that and actually create that kind of trust. And in, in terms of zero zero trust, it's it's not that nothing has access to anything. It's that you start with your your baseline is nothing can talk to anything. It's the idea of like, hey, like you you can only come into my house if I know you and I know who you are. Yeah, you're good. You check out. You can you can come in and so forth because you're a trusted identity. I know actually who you are and so forth. And it's granting access in that way as opposed to, to things like, think of it in terms of 
it, it's, it's a different way of thinking about it, where a lot of times previously, you'd set things up where you might have two data centers, and you have to, op- you have to create a bridge between these two data centers. Well, now, if data center A gets compromised, basically, data center B is also compromised, because you've had to, op- you've had to create a bridge, and you've had to open the door between them and link them to that's the piece where in a zero trust world, it's like, we got we got to get away from that thinking to where it's like, no, 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 no. like, assume, you know, assume, you know, anything inside of data center a is hostile and assume everything inside of data center b is also hostile Mm -hmm. but certain trusted entities inside of data center a can talk to certain explicit services inside of data center b and and it's trying to and it's trying to narrow the access and 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 create create a trust model around that to where it's like we know we're isolating access at the network level we're naming things explicitly to where it's like it's not just it's not just an entire subnet that gets access. No, it's like a specific thing. It might be a server. It might be a container. Um, it might be a specific application or, or a Python script. You know what I mean? Where it's like this Python script has an app embedded implementation to where inside of the code, it encrypts it and sends it across and so forth because it supports that type of model. And so it's, it's trying to get away from kind of opening the entire the entire floodgate in terms of, you know, I need I need these I need data center A to talk to data center B. They, you know, so so now the doors just mm-hmm. open. Um, they're peered and anything in A can talk to B. Well, from a security model, that's that's not so good. At least in in, in the world that I think that we're we're having to move towards. So So you're kind of setting up that entity A talks to entity B and the fact that they're in different data centers or regions or whatever is almost irrelevant. Exactly. And that's the piece that that's the speed element to where you actually can move faster in that way, because you're not, you're not having to go talk to the network guys who are grumpy at you, because now they got it. Now they got to, you know, do more peering, and they got to open more stuff to each other, because you haven't had to create any new doors anywhere, right, for, for things to talk. It's like, no, I can, I can connect my systems, wire stuff together, I can get my job done. And yet I have not, I have not um, created new openings anywhere from a security perspective. So, right. because yeah, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter where entity A is or where entity B is, because the other thing that you, that you can do with, with OpenZD is you can create phony DNS names and it will, it will intercept on that. So you can even mask the actual destination address. Um, so, you know, so you can even say, you know, sandbox.database.com you know, that ZD, and it'll intercept at that address, and it'll ship it across, and it'll send it to whatever, wherever that database actually is, and you're, and you're not even revealing the actual address on the other side. So. Right. When you do secure databases, do you have plugins to MySQL and, and Postgres and, and whatever to enable this, or is it something you add in your container as a sidecar type of thing, or... There's, there's different places that, that you can intercept. It depends on, it kind of depends on your setup and so forth. We did, we've done a lot of work around uh, a JDBC driver to basically, so, so that it, it can be somewhat generic uh, and we can use that. Um, that's one of the things that we are continuing to, to develop and build out and, and so forth. But uh, MySQL and Postgres were kind of, um, they were kind of frontline targets that we wanted to hit because, of course, those are extremely common technologies that people use. And that allows people to embed, um, embed ZD into their application pretty easily if they can, if they can use a, a JDBC driver. But it's also allowed us to do things like basically like a ZD-fied uh, JDBC driver for uh, IntelliJ, for example. So you can actually use that so that your, your IntelliJ app itself, that's actually where, that's actually where um, it's embedded from there. And it'll uh, intercept within the application as opposed to on your laptop. So yeah, yeah. Okay. This is really intriguing and something I've taken a look at briefly here and there, but want to take a look deeper. How would I get started? How how does one install a zero trust network? 
I think the easiest way, there's two two offerings that, that we've got. There's, there's, there's OpenZD, which is the open source um, offering, and there's some... Um, there's some kind of quick starter material that lets you stand up a network locally mm-hmm. uh, for that. And then um, the enterprise offering that Foundry it has, um, we're, we're, we've just gotten redone, kind of revamping our plans, but there's basically like, uh, I forget the name of it. It's like, a, it's like a starter plan where it's like, if you've got less than 10 entities in your network and so forth, uh, it's the free tier model. Mm-hmm. That'd be probably the quickest way to to start up because uh, in the same way that like AWS console lets you kind of like click, you know, click a few buttons and you've got some yeah. stuff running. Uh, same yeah. kind of deal where it tries to get you get you started to where um, you know you stand up a network and then you know they'll typically be kind of the cloud hosted fabric uh, portion and then you install um, either tunnelers or edge routers in your in your infrastructure and start mm-hmm. making things talk. So okay, and yeah. how feasible is it to actually set it up in real life the first time outside of Hello World? Usually the Hello World getting started guide is like click click click. Oh hey, this is great, and then you do it with a real app and. It's yeah. sometimes a different story. Yep. After the first time, I, I was relying a little bit on pre-installed infrastructure. But if you if you imagine clicking a button which initializes your network, you click another button to initialize your fabric mesh in the cloud, and then we have a VM image that's available for most major cloud providers. You you drop that somewhere inside of your private, you know, private network space, whatever your cloud provider is, and then you download a tunneler client for your laptop. And that gives you end to end all the all the components and so forth to kind of get started. So and then from there you from there it's it's defining, you know, what do you, what do you want your access controls to be and so forth. And so you'd have to define what's the actual service that I want to talk to on the other end that I want to be locked down. You know, you give your endpoints or your, your you give your identity the attributes necessary to talk to it. So right. Okay. But it's it's uh, getting getting started from ground zero. You know, it's probably more time just spent familiarizing yourself with the UI than you know the actual product and so forth. But most of that learning time is just understanding the concepts. But in terms in terms of the actual setting up of the infrastructure, it's very lightweight. It's like, well, how long does it take you to download a VM Im- image and fire it up in your infrastructure, and then download something for your laptop? Well, it, in terms of the setup and installation, that's about how long. The rest of the time, it's simply defining your policies and access. Right. So. Okay. And then synchronize with AD and do the, all the other stuff later on as, as you kind of develop your knowledge and understanding of how it all goes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sounds good. I think for me, it's been a fun journey because I, I joke with my guys internally that I'm not like, I'm not like a, uh, a Kool-Aid drinker. I'm, I'm, I'm not a marketing guy and I probably wouldn't be, but I do like tools that in the DevOps space, I can get a lot of mileage out of and that help me si- solve a variety of problems. Uh, because once I land on a tool like that, I kind of adopt it into my repertoire and so forth. And in, and in terms of that connectivity problem as a, as a DevOps guy of wiring stuff together, this one does a great job of really solving that for me where it's like, no, I still get to move fast. I can get my job done. And then I don't make the security guys hate me every time I, I set up something and, and, and wire systems mm. together. So that piece of it, I, I, once I started using it myself, it was pretty exciting for me. So, so you get to do the move fast and break things without exposing them. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yep. The shared secret. So, guys, are there any other thoughts that come to mind that we haven't discussed about this this topic, and you absolutely love to say it before we wrap up? Um, I think. I think for me, just a, a challenge to the DevOps community is to stop stop assuming trust with your internal systems. And it was something that, I, that as, as we've adopted a culture of security within, within the company that I'm at and, and, and actually watching the team, the teams start to think more in that way. I think I would challenge the community as well um, that you, you can move fast, 
but we can also be secure. And I think, uh, I think sometimes we've gotten a bad rap for running fast and loose. And uh, I think with some of the new technology available, I don't think we have to do it that way anymore. And uh, I, th- I, would, I would just challenge the community to step up the way we handle security, especially with the tools that we're using every day. Thank you. What about you, Andy? I quite often have been the one who's like punching holes here and exposing services there just because I wanted to move fast. And uh, then I almost always regret it later on when I realize what I've done. So I think this is a good good idea. And definitely I'm going to be playing around with it some more and seeing how I can move fast and break things internally without exposing them. Yep. There, there is a natural ten- tension with our, our job position. And because we sit between two worlds, inevitably, somebody's always waiting on us. So it's mm-hmm. like, yes, that uh, that push to, to, to move fast is, uh, is, is very real. So, yep. Thank you for listening. As usual, we have enclosed the links to the social media profiles of our guests to the show notes. Please take a look. You can also find links to the literature referred in the podcast on the show notes, alongside other interesting educational content. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on our platform. It means the world to us. Also check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, I would like to invite you personally to the DevOps conference happening online on March 8th and 9th. The participation is free of charge for attendees. You can find the link to the registration page from where else than in the show notes. Now, Let's give our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. I say now, take care of yourselves and see you in the DevOps conference. Uh, hey, everybody. This is Mike Guthrie. I am a senior engineer at NetFoundry, and I lead our uh, our RAV team, which is reliability, automation, and visibility. And uh, here today just to talk about how to make your DevOps environment dark. Hi, I'm Andy Elred. I started my career as an electronic warfare specialist in the U.S. Navy working on nuclear-powered fast-attack submarines, which is something always kind of unique and gets people's attention. After that, I moved into telecoms and worked in telecoms mostly, or I started on the radio side, but then shifted more to the IT side of telecom companies and worked there for, for quite a number of years. Then recently, I've moved into the consultancy space and working as a consultant for DevOps and cloud projects. 